when Christ entered into the holy city of Jerusalem one week before his victorious resurrection, he was proclaiming to the world that he was the eternal, present, and coming king of all nations. This is the first in a five-part mini-series tracing the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over sin, death, and the entire secular realm of men and nations. A roll covenant reading coming from Psalm 96, Psalm 96, the entirety of the psalm, Psalm 96, the 13 stanzas of the psalm. Beloved of the Lord, as Psalm 96 begins what is known as the enthronement psalms, the psalmist writes, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. For he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Matthew writing in the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses of the same spirit that moved the psalmist to write of the enthronement of the sovereign king of the universe. Matthew presents to us the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. By inspiration of God, he writes this, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied in a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day in the anticipation of the king enthroned. Now the account of Christ's procession into the holy city, Jerusalem, is without a doubt one of the most important declarations of the Christ on par, I believe on par, with his subsequent crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. Simply because it dramatically symbolizes the overall global purpose for his incarnation. And that purpose was the declaration of his universal sovereignty over men and nations. If the Bible can be focusing upon one thing and one thing alone, it is the sovereignty of the Lord God over everything. 
if we are to distill everything of the Bible into one fundamental doctrine, it is God is sovereign. The entire focus, object, theme, and goal of the Old Testament scriptures is on the person, work, and victorious conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ, all which is fulfilled in the New Testament and displayed in this triumphal entry into the holy city, Jerusalem. The significance of Christ's glorious procession into the holy city is nothing less than God's absolute declaration that Christ will and now has actually become the enthroned king, the sovereign king of the universe, that was testified of in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. Matthew understood exactly what the triumphal entry represented. He saw it, understanding it, as the eminent enthronement of Yahweh as king in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the law of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets proclaimed would come to reign among his people and over the entire global order so as to reconstruct the culture according to his righteous will. That's why he came, to be sovereignly over all things, to reconstruct it and conform it to his righteous will, his righteous law. Now understanding exactly what the triumphal entry represented, Matthew draws from and quotes from a number of Old Testament passages and ideas, especially those of the royal psalms. And there are those psalms in the Psalter that we consider the royal psalms, the enthronement psalms, that speak directly of the king and his majesty. And particularly one of those psalms is Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And by quoting from these psalms, by quoting from that psalm in particular, he connects the Old Testament with the New Testament as one seamless whole, one seamless garment. Notice what the psalmist says in 118, verse 25 and 6. Save now, in other words, Hosanna, that's what that means. I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. This was the very psalm that the Lord led the apostles in at the Passover supper before his crucifixion. And by his choice of Psalm 118, the Lord, it seemed that he was pointing to his own victory and his subsequent coronation as the conquering king. Now consider the meaning of such a procession. Christ's entrance into Jerusalem was the historic testimony of the universal overall and comprehensive sovereignty of the sovereign king and his authority as he comes into the world as the incarnate Christ, the Lord Jesus. This actualization would be then manifested after the completion of his atonement, his glorious resurrection, his coronation as king described in Daniel 7, and the empowerment of his army of saints in A.D. 33 at the Feast of Pentecost, when, with one sermon that Peter gives, 3,000 men and women are saved. In Psalm 96, the psalmist clearly describes what this event signified. In this psalm, again, the enthronement psalm, the psalmist makes certain that Israel knows that when the king actually comes, he will not only come as the conquering king in behalf of, of and over all of his people, he will come to reign over all people. Not just his people. He's not the Lord of the church alone. He's the Lord of all people. And so, the psalmist in Psalm 96 verse 10 says this, Say among the heathen, now remember that the word heathen is actually the word in the Hebrew for the word nations. Say among the nations... In other words, tell the nations, not just Israel, not just you, not just me, and not just that historical period, but say among the nations that the Lord reigns. Declare this, that God is the reigning king. Next, the psalmist testifies that as a result of the king's coming at his incarnation, because that's what it's pointing to, and his subsequent victory over all things, his reign, his subsequent victory because of his resurrection victory, he now is going to establish the word so that it is the law word of the entire global order. So he's going to establish the world by his law word. Notice what it says, Psalm 96. The world also shall be established. How? How shall the world be established? 
by his word so that it shall not be moved. The indication is that the world and its entire social and institutional construct will one day be established in righteousness and by righteousness according to Christ's sovereign rule. That is why Christ has come, to sovereignly rule over the nations of the world so that it conforms to his righteous law word. This declaration was not speaking of some kind of social gospel, but rather a culture regulated and obedient to the law word of God. So the psalmist then declares that when the king finally comes, as promised in his covenant, he will also come as judge, not only lawgiver, but judge. Notice, he shall judge the people righteously. The indication here is that the world's establishment will not only be established in righteousness and by righteousness, but according to Christ's judgment as the lawgiver and judge of the earth. So again, we're pointing forward to what is Christ's authority, how is his authority going to be implemented, and it will be implemented not only as he comes as king, but he comes as judge and lawgiver. So as a result of what the Lord declared in Matthew 28, that all power and authority had been given to him, he is stating that his position, this position of Christ's supremacy has been established in our time and in our period of life. His divine supremacy had been established at his resurrection in A.D. 33. It's not coming in the by and by, but it has happened already. And at that point, Christ was given total sovereign rule, total reign, total supremacy over heaven and earth, and all that therein is. In other words, very simply put, he is the king now. He's not going to be the king, but he's the king now. And as the reigning king, he would then take his rightful place as the dominion king, regaining the paradise that Adam lost in the fateful event in the Garden of Eden. As the last Adam, Christ then would regain all that Adam had forfeited, all that was lost in Eden. He would now subdue the earth and take dominion over men and nations, ruling them in righteousness. And it was at that point at the point of his resurrection, that the Lord would then bring to pass the prophetic words of Psalm 2, when the Lord would break into pieces those that rebelled against him, all the kings of the earth that rebelled against him. Notice what it says in Psalm 2, 5. And this is a messianic prophecy of what Christ will do when he comes finally as the reigning king. Then shall he speak unto them, the rebellious kings of the earth, in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king, notice, a king who ultimately has a kingdom upon my holy hill of Zion. So when these psalms were penned, Israel knew without a doubt that the authors were referring to Yahweh, the king, because he was the only king that they knew of. During the days of Isaiah, Israel would have made the connection to the enthronement promise with Isaiah's declaration where he tells Israel in Isaiah 33:22, in our King James it says this, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. But the Hebrew would have understood it a little differently. He would have understood, for Yahweh is judge, for Yahweh is lawgiver, for Yahweh is our king, he will save us. Yahweh was the lawgiver. Yahweh was the judge. Yahweh was the king. The promise of the Lord's messianic enthronement was not merely the future hope of Israel, but the future hope of all of civilization. And for us, it is our present hope. And this is what the Hebrew writer was referring to in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Notice what he says. Speaking of Christ, which hope, the hope of his Sovereignty, the hope that he came, the hope that he is reigning in his righteousness, reigning according to his promise. Which hope, Hebrews 6.19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. So as a result of the realization of this messianic promise of victory, the people of God would finally be able to rejoice in the fulfillment of that promise. Because when Christ comes, it was a time of great, great rejoicing. 
The hope was no longer something hoped for. It was something that had now been manifested. Note their response to the Lord's enthronement. Psalm 96 verse 11. Because of the Lord's coming, notice what the psalmist says that the people of God should be doing. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. Consider the reason why we're having such a joyous time. Why is it that the entire global order could rejoice? Because... He cometh, verse 13. He, for he cometh, he cometh to judge the earth. Notice again, his authority as judge. He shall judge the world with righteousness, the law, and the people with his truth, the word of God. That is how Jesus comes upon the scene as lawgiver, judge, and king. In a world where justice is perverted and righteousness is frowned upon, Christ has promised to restore justice, to restore judgment, not only in the church, but in the world itself, in the entirety of the earth. The procession of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the anticipation of Christ's eminent magisterial dominion enthronement that would be certified after his victorious resurrection and actualized at his coronation when he ascended to the Father, recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7. Note the language of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to, to, not from, but to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him, notice, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages, the entire global structure, the entire global order, should serve him, bow before him, if you will. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. You see, Daniel testifies of the coronation event when the Lord Jesus was actually enthroned as the King of Kings to be seated at the right hand of God, judging the people and nations of the earth. And the procession of the anticipated King was divinely orchestrated and staged so as to prove, and this is important, in a public display, the entrance into Jerusalem was public. It wasn't secret. In a public display, that the covenant promises of the Old Testament concerning the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, now is finally realized. The promise had come in real time, in real history. The goal of this pronouncement was so the world would behold the establishment of the crown rights of King Jesus over the entire created order and over every nation and institution therein as lawgiver, judge, and sovereign king. And this is why Matthew was careful to quote from the fourth book of the Psalms, particularly from Psalm 118 in the Hallelujah Hallel, it's called, when, the, when, when, when he pens the account of the triumphal entry and he says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee. Save now. Prosperity has come. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. So Matthew 21 points Israel back to the Old Testament Psalms in order to make the clear connection between the prophecy and the fulfillment by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what God is saying simply is that Jesus is king and man is not. Man is not the orchestrator of human events. Man is not the lawgiver. Man is not the judge. Nor is he any way omniscient, omnipotent, or messianic. He is nothing in the sight of God but puny man with a puny intellect made from the dust of the earth and set upon a dunghill as a result of his rebellion in Adam. What does the fact of Christ's sovereignty actually mean? And we talk about this. God is sovereign. God is, God is king. God is reigning. What does it actually mean? And how is it globally efficacious in our modern times? Well, consider first the sovereignty of God against the quest by man for sovereignty. 
Throughout history, man has sought to dethrone God so as to be God and control all human events according to his own wicked and fallen will. The psalmist tells us this much when he writes in Psalm 62, verse 4. They, the wicked of the world, they, wicked man, they, man who wants to be sovereign, only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. And then in verse 5, But my soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. So you see, what man is trying to do is cast down God from his excellency. They don't want his excellency to be paraded before them. They want to cast him down. So in an effort to be as God, or to either be as God or construct a God that they can lord over, mankind, fallen in Adam, is consumed with the idea of sovereignty. You think about what's happening in the world today. Man is consumed with being sovereign. The serpent's lie to Eve could actually be stated like this. Ye shall be sovereign, ye shall be as God, ye shall be sovereign, knowing good and evil. As theologian Martin Silbredi explains, he says, it is crucial to understand this one indisputable fact. The program put across by the serpent involved sovereignty. Sovereignty entails possessing the authority to define and to determine the definition of all things. Man is infatuated with the idea of control. Man is infatuated with the idea of control. El Sobretti explains mankind desires to possess ultimate authority in order to define and control the world around him and the people of the world around him so as to determine its outcome. And this is man's inner drive. And given the opportunity, he will make the most of it, even if it means the total destruction of others. We see this in the world today. We see this in our government today. Climate control, monetary control, medical and health control, travel control, education control, military control, technology control. Everything's about control. And ultimately, they will seek for mind control, which they can only accomplish through the media propaganda and media control, which they are doing, and that's their mind control. Sinful man also seeks to control human logic, evidenced by the redefinition of the male and female genders. It's all about control. It's all about who rules. And where's the church? Silent in their four-wall ghettos. But what man cannot fathom is that he is limited. Man cannot wrap his head around the fact that he is not sovereign. He can only go as far as God will allow him to go and no further. Moreover, what the state cannot fathom, what man in his quest for sovereignty cannot fathom is that they too are also limited in their rule and when they begin to overreach their legitimate authority, they must be met with biblical opposition and that biblical opposition must come from us. We cannot just curse the darkness. We must put the light on the candlestick. Sinful man desires to be the center of the universe, the dispenser of truth and the sole determinator of human events. And the one thing that drives them absolutely insane, because by nature mankind in their fallen state, they are insane, but what really gets them over the edge, what drives them insane beyond their natural tendency to be mad and hating God, is that God claims sovereignty over and against man and they are powerless against him. Remember what Pilate said to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you know that I have power to either let you go or to crucify you? And Jesus said very clearly, you are limited by God. You have no power, but it was given to you of God. Nevertheless, in their insatiable thirst for power over and against God, they devise many evils in order to foolishly declare their sovereignty and oppress those that they seek to rule over. Isaiah explains it this way. In Isaiah 32, 7, he says, the instruments also of the churl are evil. He devises wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, the media, 
heresies, lies, even when the needy speaketh right. It is this conspiratorial mindset of evil devices among the reprobate of the world that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 2. Again, back to Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why do they tumultuously assemble themselves and meditate upon vanity? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. And that word anointed is the word Messiah. Against his Messiah, against the Christ, against the sovereignty that is only given to the one true God saying, let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their laws from us, their cords from us so that we can be a law unto ourselves and judges of ourselves. That's man's inclination. Rebellious man is saying that they do not want God's restrictive laws to be their guide. Cast the bands from us. Cast the bands of the triune God from us so we can do what we want so that we can be God. Such was the design of the secular philosophers and social activists, authors, rulers, legislators, magistrates, poets, political theorists, and heretical theologians of history. By their activities and the dispensing of their anti-biblical ideologies, they were confederating with each other to negate the sovereignty of God and establish their own wicked power base. You think about what is taught in the government schools today. Who do you read? What poets do you read? What historians? What philosophers do you read? All of the anti-Christians. These were the devices and the imaginations of men and their evil hearts. And while the devices of the wicked are always at work in the world, we can also trace it back more specifically within our own nation. According to the Reverend John Witherspoon and many of the Puritans, America was originally to be the city upon a hill that the Lord had spoken of. Originally. He told the citizens of the Massachusetts Bay Colony that all the eyes of the world would be upon them in order to be a shining light of Christian charity and devotion to the Lord and His truth. America was to be a public display of Christian governance, Christian religion, and liberty for all nations to follow. The unifying factor of America, as it is in all nations and all realms, is religion. Christianity was to be the unifying factor of America. God had promised Israel that if they observed his commandments of ethical obedience, which he set forth at Sinai, they would be a model of righteousness to every nation. And one of those requirements, in addition to ethical purity, was to keep his holy Sabbath because it was there where the majesty of the Creator God was proclaimed publicly before the nations. And this is what Deuteronomy chapter 4 is all about. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. And that land was a pagan land. That was the land was Canaan. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God and is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. But what do you hear today? What do you hear from the church today? Oh, oh, not the law of God? Not the law of God. Anything but the law of God. We don't want to hear about the law of God. Because the law of God is too restrictive. But these are the wise and understanding sayings of God. This is what makes a nation a wise and understanding people. This is what makes a nation great. This is what brings the Lord our God close to the nation when we obey His laws, His statutes, His judgments, which are so righteous and which were set before us. But today you talk to the church, never mind the civil magistrates, never mind the reprobate, but you talk to church leaders today and what do you hear? Oh, anything but the law of God. 
It sounds so familiar to me as in the days of William Tyndale when he chastised the clerics. They said, the Pope? We would rather defy the law of God than the law of the Pope. Well, they will have their reward. Israel was to publicly acknowledge the supremacy of the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and actively secure his crown rights over all nations with the advancement of his dominion kingdom on earth, first by their obedience, second by their public community declaration of his law, and third by actually building Christendom. They were actually to take the law of God and apply it to the world and build Christendom. But you don't even hear that word talked about anymore. When's the last time you were at a a place where they were preaching or that they said it was preaching that you heard that, that Christianity is to build Christendom once again? You don't. Because they're not thinking about Christendom. They're thinking about personal piety and personal Christianity. But what we must do today is build Christendom. That is how we are to promote the crown rights of King Jesus. The King of Kings. The King over all kings. And this is why when we read about He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, what what, what does that even mean? He's the King over all the kings. He is the pinnacle. He is the sovereign. He is the magistrate. By our Sabbath observance, our personal obedience, and our gospel declaration and activity in the world, we are set forth to build Christendom. We are not to concern ourselves or to be overly distressed with the wicked devices of the reprobate because the scripture clearly states, Psalm 5.12, He disappointed the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. Just reading that, if that was the only scripture that spoke of the wicked, and their limitation. I could sleep at night. But that is not the only scripture. To know that God disappoints the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform all that they have chosen to do. So when I hear that the government's trying to do this, or the president's trying to do that, or the Supreme Court's trying to do this, God laughs. And I am at peace. That's not the only passage. Notice Psalm 33, 10, 37, 7, Proverbs 1, 31, Proverbs 19, 21. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to nothing. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Rest, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Because there are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. In the same way as Israel succumbed to the ways of the wicked, so too did America. During the time of its creation, succumbed to secularism both within and without the church. And it was this downward slide into the dark apostasy that began to deconstruct Witherspoon's hope. By the 1800s, America saw the rise in dispensationalism with John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield undermining the universal conquering power of Christ within time and in history. Christ was to be a defeated foe. He no longer was the king. The devil owned the world, Satan was in charge, and Christ was put in a back burner. By the 1900s, men like John Foster Dulles, William Jennings Bryant, who introduced into the churches the idea of a one-world government, came upon the scene in effect, seeking to reestablish the Tower of Babel and man's sovereignty over the earth. Then we have the liberal radicals, the liberal Baptists, the minister Harry Fostick, also of the early 1900s, encouraging radical liberalism to be embraced by the church, which included abortion and homosexuality. And what do you have now in the church? Voting for the Democrats. Not that the Republicans are in any great shape either, but okay, fine. But at least we know, but at least we know where the Democrats stands. They want to kill people. They want to kill babies, both before birth and after birth. This radical liberalism in the church in the 1900s. And by 1924, many Presbyterian pastors had already joined together and began questioning, questioning the inerrancy of Scripture. 
paving the way for the total eradication of the supremacy of the word of God and its replacement with the mind of man. Well, you know, the scriptures really don't mean that today. Well, that was for then. And you know, just men read that and said that and did that. And that's not really the word of God. It's just the idea. So once the church embraces this nonsense, they embrace the propaganda of these heretics, their duty to establish the crown rights of the Lord's supremacy over all the earth evaporates. And then we're told that we should just wait until Jesus comes. These heresies, these ideas, these radical ideas gave free reign to the secularist dominion conquest. Their quest for dominion was fueled by these ideas within the sacred world and the secular world. And so the first tactic in man's quest to be sovereign is to question the absolute authority of Scripture because that would undermine God himself. The second is to cause doubt whether God is really in control of world events or not, which begins to erode faith, replacing it with fear. You Think about it. Did God really say that? Can he be trusted? Is the word true? The third tactic is to erode the moral foundation of the nation by reconstructing it according to man's own wicked, fallen imagination. So now we have legislated wickedness and prohibited righteousness. Man by nature seeks to reconstruct his environment. That's his nature. Reconstruction is a natural result of man's nature. And when the nature of man is depraved, when it's fallen, when it's fallible, then the only thing he can do is that he can reconstruct his environment accordingly to his wickedness, to his fallenness. On the other hand, when man's nature is regenerated by the grace of God, he no longer seeks to reconstruct the social order according to his sinful lusts. He now considers the will of God and seeks to reconstruct all aspects of civilization accordingly to the glory of God. Not for the power of himself. And he understands clearly the implications in the model prayer of the Lord when he taught his apostles to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is modeled in heaven, as it is modeled in the law of God. In other words, the righteousness of the kingdom of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ should structure the entire global order and every element of civilization within that order as it was originally intended in heaven and modeled in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But man is not only naturally evil. Man is not only naturally evil. He seeks to establish others to do evil. There's an old saying, misery loves company. It's pretty biblical. Evil loves the company of other evil men. Isaiah describes man's intentions as both corrupted and corruptors of others. Not only is wicked mankind a corrupted individual, he seeks to corrupt others. It's a plague. Isaiah 1.4 Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. And think about it, a seed of evildoers. What does a seed produce but a big tree? Unless it's cut down. A seed of evildoers, children that are, notice, not corrupted, but children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger and they are all gone away backward. So natural man without the Spirit of God is not only corrupt by nature, he's also a corrupter by nature. I remember I watching a movie once and some woman was seducing a man and the man was not being so easily provoked. And he said to the woman, I see you're, you're trying to seduce me. And she said, oh, you've got that wrong. I'm trying to corrupt you. Corrupters by nature. It is according to that principle that natural man without the Spirit of God works. Describing unregenerate man, the apostle gives this catalog. Notice this catalog. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, Full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, inventors of evil things. They are inventing evil things. They're not just discovering evil things, they're inventing more evil things. Disobedient to parents. And don't be surprised when the government comes up with this incredible scheme that is going 
to just decimate the freedom of, of the, the human spirit because that's what they do. They're only doing what they do. A dog barks. A pig has, has a oinking sound. You can't expect a dog to sing like a canary because a dog is a dog is a dog. Fallen man is fallen man and they will do what fallen man does. They are inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who know it, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Corruptors. They love to see other people doing bad things. So when the Lord entered into Jerusalem, he was making a public statement which had personal, political, legal, and social ramifications. Personally, he was entering into the city of peace so as to mediate peace between God and his elect by his atonement. He was also establishing his magisterial supremacy over those he came to save. And from the point of salvation, his people, from that point, his people were no longer their own. They had been purchased as a bond slave as bond servants to serve him only according to his word of truth. Notice what the apostle says. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, You are bought with a price. Be ye not the servants of men. Politically, legally, and socially, Jesus is writing into the holy city as lawgiver, judge, and king. He is not only presenting himself as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, he's making a political statement targeting both the Roman Empire and the tyrannical magistrates of Israel, the Pharisees. Jesus' triumphal entry was calling out the tyrannical state and the apostate church. Notice what theologian Alan O'Miller says in his work, Calvin's Political Theology. He says, Indeed, magistrates properly have authority to govern society as ministers of God's law. But the church has the responsibility to minister both the gospel and the law, the gospel through the service of the word and sacrament, and the law through the prophetic role of holding up the vision of justice and challenging the government at every turn to implement it. What has happened to the church? What's happened to us? The Pharisees and scribes of Christ's day should have maintained the service of righteous judging since they sat in Moses' seat. You ever think about that? Jesus said, you sit in Moses' seat. You're civil magistrates. You're civil officers. And yet they had succumbed to secularism and forged a veiled confederation with Caesar. R.J. Rushton, he observes, he says, law comes from the sovereign power. And the law of the Lord has a binding and loosening power. The Pharisees and scribes claimed to be the bearers of the keys to God's law. But of them our Lord says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither ye go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Thus, he says, God's law is the key to government on earth. But what do you hear from the church? We don't want anything to do with God's law. We'd rather the, the oligarchy of the Supreme Court to judge. We want Congress to make some laws. We have sown the wind. We are reaping the whirlwind. For Israel, the question was always Christ or Caesar. God or the state. And this is why the people were, were asking when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, who is this? He had done for three and a half years all of these miracles. He was known all throughout the world, the world as it was known back then. And they had the audacity to say, who is this that come into Jerusalem in a, a royal-like processional? How dare he come into Jerusalem in this royal procession? Those types of processionals were reserved for the Caesar, not for a carpenter's son. So who was this man that was riding into Jerusalem in king-like fanfare? The multitude was so conditioned to think that only Caesar, only the state could be paraded as the Lord and Savior, the messianic Savior of people, that they had forgotten the prophecies concerning the coming of the legitimate divine king. They were unaware that there was any alternative to Caesar's sovereignty. You know, the church today thinks the same thing. They're unaware that there's any sovereignty other than the state. So when the state says jump, they say how high. When the state says open, they open. When the state says close, they close. When the state says this, they do that. And the other thing and the other thing. 
because they don't understand that there was an alternative. And Christ is giving them an alternative to Caesar's sovereignty. Jesus had come to give them that divine alternative. And that alternative was the only true alternative for their deliverance, liberty, and prosperity. So as a result of Israel's blindness, many were unable to come to terms with the question of Christ or Caesar. They were unable to answer the question, will the social order be one under the control of Pharaoh and his power religion, or will it submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true and legitimate enthroned king? They couldn't answer that. This is what the church has done today. We're not sure. Should we listen to the state? Should we listen to God? Should we listen to the state? Should we listen to God? I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble. I'll just listen to the state. We'd rather have the Pope's laws. We'd rather have the Pope's laws than God's laws. Nothing is new under the sun. And it is fed to us in our modern day in spades. And that's the very same question that we face today. Who will save us? God or Caesar? Politics? Elected officials? Who will save us? Secondly, by what laws will liberate and secure our liberty? How are we to be secured? What laws will secure us? What laws will grant us liberty? God's laws or the state's laws? Thirdly, by what standard is judgment to be made? God's standard or the state standard? Or the Supreme Court's standard? Either Christ is sovereign, absolute king, or he is not. Okay, so... What should we be doing? What do we got to do? Well, the ultimate goal is to reorganize the legal and social order of the culture according to the biblical model, making sure that first and foremost, the family and the church is in order. If your family, if you, an individual, or your family is out of order, get it in order. I, I don't know how else to say it. Just get your act together. Stop fooling around. And be serious with your faith, with your, your religion, with your God. Then you can exercise legitimate biblical authority publicly in order to strip the state of those institutions and controls that it has unlawfully, unlawfully commandeered, bringing it back into its place of biblical limitation. We have to begin to call people into account. But we can't do that until, not to say that we will have a perfect family structure, but at least get it together. Have your devotions. Raise your children in fear and admonition of the Lord. Teach them how to sit and be quiet and listen to God's word. Deal with the children. Deal with your generation. Deal with yourself. Fix your family at home so that they know when they come to church, this is God's house. Because if they're swinging from the chandeliers in your house and jumping off of the furniture in your house, that's what they're going to be doing here. The logistics, and these are just some ideas to consider beyond the evangelical thrust that a church must perform. And I say this because not one church can do all of these things. It takes Christendom. We need to establish Christ-centered educational systems for every level of education which do not answer to the state. We need to have them transform their minds by the word of God. We need to establish ecclesiastical courts to adjudicate disputes, get people into the church so that the church could bring proper judgment, branch out into the community, bring justice and equity back into the community. Establish local Christian banking system. I kid you not, I tell you not, we need a parallel economy because the state is trying to control everything. And once they try to, once they get access to your economy, once they gain access and total control over your banking, over your money, you are a slave. What's happening today is they're trying to make us make bricks without straw, and once that happens, we are enslaved. Totally. No longer serfs only, working the land for the noblemen, but slaves. Establish a food and clothing bank. Open it to the public. Use it as a tool to share the word of God. Establish Christ-centered homes for unwed mothers, battered women, the homeless. Use the homes of church members. Start to minister. Start to get out of your comfort zone. Let's get out of our comfort zone. We only have one life to sacrifice. We need to start sacrificing. We need to start going out of our way. We have to get into the zone of uncomfortable. 
Establish Christian training centers for the unskilled. Teach them new skills. Establish unemployment centers to help people find work. Establish Christian training centers to assist families to get out of debt. You know, when you have a credit card, that's what it is. It's a credit card. It's not a debt card. You don't use the credit card to get into debt and then say, gee, I'm really, uh, I'm really in trouble now. I got a uh, 21% interest rate. Well, shame, shame, shame on you. The borrower is a servant to the lender. You are slaves. Get out of debt. Find someone to help you. Get counsel. You are not your best counselor because you can only counsel yourself within the realm of what you know. And I have news for you. Some of you young dads, some of you young people, you don't know enough. The biggest problem with what you know is you think you know enough. And you only know what you know. What you need to know is what you don't know. That's when you get counseling. That's when you get out of your predicaments if you find yourself in predicaments. Tutorial services for school-aged children. Home education support centers. Encourage home education. Help moms to home educate. Establish Christian learning centers, libraries, research and training facilities. Wean the parents away from government schools. Train up people for cultural dominion in the name of righteousness. Because the church needs to come out of the dark ages. Come out of the dark ages of fear and intimidation. And shine the light of Christ to the nations. The church needs to use her office rightly and powerfully because that's what we've been given, the power of the Word of God and, the, and the, the testimony of the Spirit, all for the glory of God and, of course, the big picture for the survival of the culture. We need to recognize that the King reigns now and He has given the reigning power to His saints. For us today, we have more than just the promise of the coming King. We have the king himself. And we have the promise of earthly victory. The doctrine of Christ's sovereignty and his practical implications needs to be advanced in the world, beginning our community, beginning in America, since the world has made a dramatic shift in its ideology toward pagan humanism. But again, before it can be advanced in America, it needs to be embraced by the church. But here's my closing comment on that. God never told Moses to reconstruct or reform Egypt. He said, get out now. God never told any of us to reform the apostate, woke, heretical church. He says, get out. Get out because they are irredeemable. And if we're going to plant a church, think bigger. Plant a Christian community with the church at the center as the armory of God, as the training facility to train the saints to take dominion. The doctrine of Christ's sovereignty and its practical implications needs to be advanced. But before that happens, the church needs to embrace that fact. Sadly, many of the same people who cried, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord when Jesus rode in on Jerusalem. The same people later cried, We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. The very same people. May we never fail to comprehend the majesty and authority of the present reigning king as we continue to establish his crown rights by the declaration of his word, our obedience to his testimonies, and our efforts to advance his rule in the earth, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. And this we shall do, God helping us. Amen.